From Astoria to the Rockaways, it's time for the Queen's New Yorker. And here is the man giving you all the info, your uber snazzy and jazzy host, Mr. Jason D'Antonio! Thank you. All right. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're too kind. And welcome to another edition of the Queen's New Yorker. It is Thursday, February 11, 2021. This is episode number 164 and coming to you live from the WJDC studios in beautiful Vito, Florida. For this edition of the show, part one of the history of LaGuardia Airport. Yes. Mm-hmm. Hope you enjoyed that series on JFK. It was real good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very nice, very nice. And so we continue our story on uh, the airports. We're doing fine, and we're going to take you now to our our look at the uh, LaGuardia Airport and give you the history. Of course, all the information is from the Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia. So the site of the airport was originally used by the Gala Amusement Park, owned by the Steinway family. It was raised and transformed in 1929 into a 105-acre private flying field named Glen H. Curtis Airport after the pioneer Long Island Aviator, later called North Beach Airport. The initiative to develop the airport for commercial flights began with an outburst by New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. He was in office from 1932 to 1934, 1945, upon the arrival of his TWA flight at Newark Airport. The only commercial airport serving the New York City region at the time, as his ticket said New York, he demanded to be taken to New York and ordered the plane to be flown to Brooklyn's Floyd Bennett Field, giving an impromptu press conference to reporters along the way. He urged New Yorkers to support a new airport within their city. American Airlines accepted LaGuardia's offer to start a trial program of scheduled flights to Floyd Bennett, although the program failed after several months because Newark's airport was closer to Manhattan, LaGuardia went as far as to offer police escorts to airport limousines in an attempt to get American Airlines to continue operating the trial program. During the Floyd Benefit experiment, LaGuardia and American executives began an alternative plan to build a new airport in Queens where it could take advantage of the new Queens Midtown Tunnel to Manhattan. The existing North Beach Airport was an obvious location, but much too small for the sort of airport that was being planned. 
With backing and assistance from the Works Progress Administration, construction began in 1937. It is on the waterfront of Flushing and Bowery Bays in East Elmhurst and borders the neighborhoods of Astoria and Jackson Heights. Building on the site required moving landfill from Rikers Island, then a garbage dump, onto a metal reinforcing framework. The framework below the airport still causes magnetic interference on the compasses of outgoing aircraft. Signs on the airfield warn pilots about the problem. So because of Americans' pivotal role in the development of the airport, LaGuardia gave the airline extra real estate during the airport's first year of operation, including four hangars, which was an unprecedented amount of space and time. So American opened its first Admirals Club and the first private airline club in the world at the airport in 1939. The club took over a large office space that had previously been reserved for the mayor, but he offered it for lease following criticism from the press, and American Vice President Red Moisier immediately accepted the offer. The airport was dedicated on October 15, 1935, as the New York Municipal Airport and opened for business on December 2nd of that year. It cost New York City $23 million to turn the tiny North Beach Airport into a 550-acre modern facility. Not everyone was as enthusiastic as LaGuardia about the project. Some regarded it as a $40 million boondoggle. <laughs> but the public was fascinated by the very idea of air travel, and thousands traveled to the airport, paid the dime fee, and watched the airliners take off and land. Two years later, these fees and their associated parking had already provided $285,000, and other non-travel-related incomes were another $650,000 a year. The airport was soon a financial success. A smaller airport in nearby Jackson Heights, called Holmes Airport, was unable to prevent the expansion of the larger airport and closed in 1940. Newark Airport began renovations, but could not keep up with the new Queens Airport, which time called that's Time Magazine, the most pretentious land and seaplane base in the world. Even before the project was completed, LaGuardia had won commitments from the five largest airlines, that's Pan American Airways, American, United, Eastern Airlines, and Transcontinental and Western Air, that's TWA, to begin using the new field as soon as it opened. Pan Am's transatlantic Boeing 314, Flying Boats, moved to LaGuardia from Port Washington in 1940. During World War II, the airport was used to train aviation technicians and as a logistics field. Transatlantic land plane airline flights started in late 1945. Some continued after Idlewild, which is now John F. Kennedy International, opened in July of 48, but the last ones shifted to Idlewild in, eight, in April of 1951. Newspaper accounts alternately refer to the airfield as New York Municipal Airport and LaGuardia Field until the modern name was officially applied when the airport moved to Port of, Authority, Port of New York Authority control under a lease with New York City on June 1st of 47. LaGuardia opened with four runways at 45-degree angles at each other, the longest being 6,000 feet, a runway 1836 was closed soon after United DC-4 ran off the south end in 1947. 
Runway 927 was closed around 1958, allowing LaGuardia's terminal to expand northward after 1960. Circa 1961, runway 1331 was shifted northeastward to allow construction of a parallel, parallel taxiway, such amenities being unknown when uh, LaGuardia was built. And in 65 to 66, both remaining runways were extended to their present 7,000 feet. The April 1957 official airline guide shows 283 weekday fixed-wing departures from LaGuardia, 126 from American, 49 from Eastern, 33 Northeast, 31 TWA, 29 Capital, and 15 United. American's flights included 26 nonstops to Boston and 27 to Washington National, mostly Convair's 240s. The jet flights, United 727s to Cleveland and Chicago, started on June 1st of 64. Now, although LaGuardia was a large airport for the era in which it was built, it soon became too small. Starting in 1968, general aviation aircraft were charged heavy fees to operate from LaGuardia during peak hours, driving many LaGuardia operators to airports such as Teterboro Airport in Teterboro, New Jersey, the increase in traffic at LaGuardia and safety concerns promoted the closure of nearby Flushing Airport in 1984. Also in 84, to further combat overcrowding at LaGuardia, the Port Authority instituted a Sunday through Friday perimeter rule banning nonstop flights from LaGuardia to cities more than 1,500 miles away at the time. Denver was the only such city with nonstop flights, and it became the only exception to the rule. 1986, Western Airlines hoped to fly 737s and 300s nonstop to Salt Lake City and unsuccessfully challenged the rule in federal court. Later, the Port Authority also moved to connect JFK and Newark Airport to regional rail networks with the AirTrain Newark and AirTrain JFK in an attempt to make these more distant airports competitive with LaGuardia. In addition to these local regulations, the FAA also limited the number of flights and types of aircraft that could operate at LaGuardia. LaGuardia's traffic continued to grow, and by 2000, the airport routinely experienced overcrowding delays, many more than an hour long. That year, Congress passed legislation to revoke the federal traffic limits on LaGuardia by 2007, and the reduced demand for air travel following the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks on New York City quickly slowed LaGuardia's traffic growth, helping to mitigate the airport's delays. Ongoing Port Authority investments to renovate the central terminal building and improve the airfield layout have also made the airport's operations more efficient in recent years. FAA-approved instrument departure procedure, the Whitestone Climb, and the Expressway Visual Approach to Runway 31. When adopting the Expressway Approach, when the aircraft crosses the intersection of I-278 and the Long Island Expressway in Long Island City, it turns northeast on 85 degrees and follows the Long Island Expressway after reaching Flushing Meadow Park. The aircraft executes a 135-degree left turn over the Flushing Bay and joins the final approach to the runway 31. When adopting Whitestone Climb, Aircraft will circle over Flushing and head to Whitestone Bridge on the north upon takeoff from runway 13.
Such patterns aim to reduce the noise, avoid the traffic of the JFK airport, and maximize the air traffic capacity in the New York Tracon. Late 2006, construction began to replace the Wallace Harrison designed air traffic control tower built in 1962 with a more modern one. The tower began operations on October 9th of 2010. Now, August 12th of 2009, Delta Airlines and U.S. Airways announced a landing slot and terminal swap in separate press releases. Under the swap plan, U.S. Airways would have given Delta 125 operating slot pairs at LaGuardia. U.S. Airways in return would have received 42 operating slot pairs at Ronald Reagan National Airport in Washington, D.C., and be granted the authority to begin service from the U.S. to Sao Paulo, Brazil, and Tokyo, Japan. When the swap plan was complete, Delta shuttle operations would have moved from the Marine Air Terminal to Terminal C, which is the present USA, you know, the U.S. Airways Terminal. And Terminal C and D would have been connected together. U.S. Airways shuttle flights would have moved to the Marine Air Terminal, and mainline U.S. Airway flights would have moved to Terminal D the present Delta Terminal. The United States Department of Transportation announced that they would approve the Delta U.S. Airways traction or transaction under the condition that they sell slots to other airlines. Delta and U.S. Airways dropped the slot swap deal in early of July 2010, and both airlines filed a court appeal. May 2011, both airlines announced that they would resubmit their proposal of the slot swap to the U.S. DOT. It was tentatively approved by the U.S. DOT on July 21st, 2011. The slot swap received the final approval from the U.S. DOT on October 10th of 2011. Now, fast forward to December 16th of the same year of 2011. Delta Airlines announced plans to open a new domestic hub at LaGuardia Airport. The investment was the largest single expansion by any carrier at LaGuardia in decades, with flights increasing by more than 60% and destinations by more than 75%. By summer 2013, Delta increased operations to 264 daily flights between LaGuardia and more than 60 cities, more than any other airline at LaGuardia. And we stop there and pick up this Saturday with a special edition, yes, a special edition, of LaGuardia Airport. Part two coming Saturday, yes. All right. Oh, yeah. So part two is going to have the reconstruction. We'll look at planning, reconstruction. Then we'll look at the facilities, the terminals A, B, C, D, and the general aviation, ground transportation, and other facilities. And that will wrap up a short presentation of LaGuardia Airport. Well, let me give you some uh, sweating of the small stuff here before we go. And these were actually from... A day or two days ago, so I'm going to read three of them for you as we wrap up the program here. 
Uh, this one is from Tuesday, February 9th. We were supposed to have a program on that. This was supposed to be 164 on Tuesday. But on Tuesday, February 9th, it says, One of the problems with venting is that there's an endless supply of material to vent over. Therefore, if you associate feeling better with letting off steam while talking to your partner, it's addictive and early and easy for it to become a habit. Naturally, your assumption would be that more is better. It's easy to see why a participant on the listening end of a venting session might begin to feel like a punching bag over time. Makes sense. Really, it does. For yesterday, February 10th, it says it's difficult to always have the perspective needed not to be brought down by the venting of someone else, especially when it's excessive. So even though some venting is probably inevitable, there is a bit of selfishness involved as well. When we vent, someone else may be paying the price. Perhaps the best thing to do is simply be aware of how much venting is okay and how much is too much. And finally, for today's actual sweating of the small stuff, this one is for today, Thursday, February 11th, says, Ideally, everyone who is in a love relationship would treat their partner as a 100% equal in every sense of the word. Unfortunately, however, we don't live in an ideal world. For a variety of reasons, there are some people, both men and women, who feel a sense of superiority. In some cases, they feel their role or contribution is more significant or important than their partners. Well, and those are the three sweating of the small stuff for the past three days. And, of course, we will see you on Saturday for part two and the conclusion of LaGuardia Airport. I'm Jason Ecanio, and remember, always, to be honest, to be real, keep it simple, stupid, kiss. I'm the Queens, New Yorker, and don't forget that this Sunday coming up, we'll look at my friend, well, he's not my friend, <laughs> but we'll look at the man who made over 50 years of music continually going strong. Paul Simon will be the next legacy of Queens. Have a great night. We'll see you on Saturday for a special edition. Bye for now. You have been watching the Queens New Yorker. This is Jason Kelly on a Jason DeCanio internet presentation thank you for your support